This is our 4 p.m. every Thursday Pacific time at 4 o'clock. And I'm really excited today to have a really special guest, not just because she's an amazing resource and attorney, but actually one that I've worked with and from a couple different angles. Please welcome Mina Sirkin. Hey, Mina, how you doing? I'm fine, Bill. Thank you for asking me to come and join you today. Happy to be here. Thanks so thank much. Thank you for your nice comments. Thank you. Well, it used to not be so special to see you. I saw you regularly in court, and of course, since uh, COVID, we're there less often or we're on video. So it's, it's nice to see you uh, on the Zoom and all. And I think the, the thing that, that's, that I wanted to, um, the reason I'm excited to have you on, is you're really in a very defined niche within probate real estate. Oftentimes, I get asked about referring uh, somebody to a probate attorney as if they're all the same. And the thing, I, I actually did a video last week on different niches of probate attorneys, and Mina is a probate litigation attorney. So, um, you know, sometimes there's people who just administer the, the probate, and that would be a probate administrator. Like, I believe your husband runs that business in your uh, firm, right? My husband does estate administration mostly. Estate administration? Not, mostly mostly non-probate administration. There you go. So there's administration of states, non-probate, and then there's people who, you know, um, uh, when there's a, a conflict and there's litigation involved, you need a special litigator. You can't just use any ordinary attorney. You need somebody focused in that area. And Mina is one who focuses in probate litigation. So give us a little background, Mina. How did you end up being an attorney, and how did you end up, in particular, being in probate litigation? How did I end up being an attorney is a very interesting story. I originally I wanted to be an architect and um, came from an Iranian family where you did whatever your parents told you you didn't ask any questions so my father said look took a look at my portfolio and said no nah, I don't think this is gonna work um, so he said you need to go to law school and at the time I think he was involved in some kind of uh, lawsuit so he said why don't you go try this so I did and here I am um, it's now 29 years after I, I was admitted to the bar. So it looks like it's probably about 32 years since I started law school. But um, it's been good. I can't complain. Um, I worked for a gentleman who did trust and estate work, and that's all I learned, and that's all I know how to do. So um, that's sort of the beginning of my career. So you passed the bar and you were 10 years old. Congratulations. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yes, I was. I was 10 years old. Okay. No, I, was, I was actually 25 when I passed the bars. So that's still time. pretty young. Okay. Well, either way, that's definitely worthy of a, uh, of a compliment. And so um, now you're, you say you learn uh, trust and probate from this attorney, but you particularly are in litigation, having worked with you. That's really the area that you focus in, I think. Or how would, you, how would you describe it, I guess? So, yes, I do mo mostly litigated um, cases. Uh, every case usually starts out as a really nice probate administration. And then as you go forward, you realize that there's unusual elements to it. And many of them end up being um, probate litigation. So you don't know when you go. Well, sometimes you know. Sometimes when you, when you start a probate administration case, you know you're going to have litigants. That's the nature of the family relationships usually indicates to you what's going to happen. But many times you don't know. Many times you start a very nice 
appropriate by a family member and then end up in you know many different types of lawsuits uh, within a probate case so um, that's always a possibility but family dynamics govern um, whether there there's an outside relationship whether or not there's children from a prior marriage involved or siblings that just simply hate each other because something had gone wrong during their childhood that usually uh, those are good indicators that that there's a large possibility of litigation in this case in any case um it happens in trust happens in probates happens in conservatorships that all of those feelings kind of work themselves in so I say in real estate, nothing good happens the day you open escrow until you close and get the check and the customer gets their proceeds. It just, it can only get worse, never better. My experience in probate says it's the same thing. The longer it goes, even that friendly probate when it starts can start to turn acrimonious and I guess litigious at some point. Is that your experience with it? Um, yeah, that, that, well, that's not always true. Um, when you start probate, it can turn good or bad. I mean, it, just like any escrow would. Um, sometimes you open the probate and there's no bag of worms. There's no, there's nothing unusual. And you go forward and you finish a case after about a year in LA County and uh, then you're a happy camper. But um, it's an unpredictable business in, in the sense that because emotions are involved, um we're tied to somebody else's feelings and we can't always gauge how they feel i mean we, we think we do but we can't always gauge that i think i think you i lost you was it just me or was that just me or was that every did everybody lose me there for a second Okay. Yes. So one more time. I'm sorry. So one more time. I'm sorry, Mina. You were saying how sometimes it start well, off and then well, and then sometimes it goes sideways. I think we lost you just for a second. Yes, I, I I think in every probate case, it's it's possible that you end up with you know starting as a nice probate, and then it goes sideways, or you start the probate knowing it's going to go sideways from the first minute you file. Um, so there's those two possibilities abilities but it's it's an unpredictable business because sometimes you have fighting siblings that start out fighting and then they quickly realize that if they don't stop fighting or they don't mediate that the only people who end up making money are the lawyers right. and unfortunately in, in probate litigation that is a reality so um, we tell people you know the sooner you resolve your differences the more money you take off the right, table exactly right exactly but, exactly it, it is exactly. it does it, it is it does seem at times that they're, the, they're just burning through, through the process of so you have some so you have some probate years and just spend more fighting than you're resolving than you're resolving so in a standard probate fees can vary they're capped based on the law a million dollar a million dollar estate or maybe it's capped thousand dollars or so when you get into litigation when you get into litigation though the legal fees can be legal fees a lot can more be than that, a lot more than that correct yes there are so the twenty three thousand dollars that you mentioned is that is a gauge of what's called the statutory fee a statutory fee is a probate that doesn't have anything unusual doesn't have a court approved sale doesn't have anything that results in additional time um there is a second category of fees, which is called extraordinary fee. And extraordinary fees are 
based on the regular hourly rates of the lawyers. These are for anything involving a will contest, involving uh, finding assets that are difficult to marshal. These could involve um, interpretation of a will. And many things can cause extraordinary fees. And court-approved sales often uh, result also in extraordinary fees. And the reason for that is the 23,000, while it covers the normal actions, the, the day-to-day things that we have to do to get to the finish line, um, so it would cover like a, an accounting petition or inventories, et cetera, it really does not account for the time that it takes to deal with discovery, lawsuits, uh, filing a lawsuit, responding to a lawsuit, and all of those things. So all of those are um, extraordinary, including title actions, um including title disputes so many times we go into probate thinking that the decedent owned a piece of property and then somebody else files an action um saying no 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 that one that doesn't belong to the dead guy that belongs to my uncle or that belongs to my deceased aunt you know anything is possible so um with respect to expectations of fees um yeah statutory fees would be for a very nice probate those don't usually come my way but um if they have come my way on occasion so um it depends on the circumstances of the case so what do you see is the number one thing or the most common thing that people do that lead to litigation that maybe they could avoid if you were to sit back and watch somebody in the midst of that process, how would you guide them or what would you say to them to avoid the time and effort challenges of, of, uh, of a cost of litigation case? The thing that, there's a couple of things that, that create litigation is when a parent favors one child over another child. Inevitably, it creates that. When a parent at the end of their life um, they get help from one child and they feel obligated to compensate that child for more that often creates litigation and when you have a parent who becomes dependent on a child and that child ends up either transferring assets to themselves or getting compensated more or getting the dad to an estate attorney late in life that creates litigation um so the thing to avoid is don't favor any of your children over others, even though you may want to. If it's strictly just to avoid probate, don't favor any of them. I mean, because it leaves somebody with a bad taste in their mouth. And if that somebody is litigious, they will start a lawsuit. So that's my only recommendation. Now, one of the things I've noticed, you know, having seen you in court back when we were able to, gosh, it was a long time ago, a year and a half ago, um, regularly, was that, you know, a lot of your business was based on other attorneys, that attorneys kind of refer business where there's litigation or they need a, a, an independent person or they need somebody temporarily to manage certain things. Do you actively market yourself to attorneys? Is it just the camaraderie of being there in the court? And if so, what do you do now that we're in COVID and not in the court regularly? It's a combination of the two. 
I mean, the relationships that I've developed, they have all developed over years. Um, they, some of them are strong enough for COVID or no COVID, we all refer back to each other just because the, the nature of the business is I, I can't take on everything and other people also can't take on everything. And, and there's a suitable person for every case. So uh, some of those come, but I do, I do tend to write a lot. I tend to um, go on talks like this. I tend to Zoom with people quite a bit. Um, so some of those have helped. Television helps. So many of these things all just add together. Uh, so for anyone who is looking to market themselves, obviously having a list is important. Not having the list is not helpful. But if you know, for example, that you can call on one of your friends to get you a document, and I see one of my friends right here. I see Scott Greenberg, who um, I was once going to have a talk with a newspaper reporter, and I called on Scott Greenberg, and Scott Greenberg jumped on it. And even though he's not an attorney, I've known him for many, many years, he was able to get me the document so I could answer the questions for the reporter. So these are long-standing relationships, um, you know, that that have come and gone over the years. COVID or no COVID, they exist. The value of a Rolodex, hard to quantify, but it is really uh, the, the critical one of the critical assets in your business, I think. So everybody has a uh, a niche, so to speak. So um, I'm curious about your perspective. I know how I feel, you know, since COVID initially, you know, things stopped and then they've opened up, but there's the video versus going in person, except for certain things. How do you see the difference of the workflow now, uh, let's say in the last, you know, 90 days or six month period? And what do you, what do you expect to happen over the next six months to a year? Do you have any insight at all? Well, I can tell you from personal experience that I am not doing the drive downtown anymore. My drive used to be a total of two and a half to three hours a day. Right. But unfortunately or fortunately, that two and a half hours of free time, which I thought I had at the beginning of COVID has now converted itself to email time. So <laughs> what I used to be able to do in person, I can't do it anymore. So I have to do it by email. So they, the communication has changed, but you know, we get on a Zoom for five minutes, 10 minutes. So we have to be better scheduled, uh, schedulers now. So I now use um, an app called Calendly. So if I want to set up particular times of the day where I talk to a client or I talk to colleagues, I just give them my Calendly link and they can pick a time. And, and those are the only times I'm available. So they can see my availability and pick a time. But all of court for me has gone online. So I can appear at 8.30, 9.30, 11, 1.30 or three o'clock, you know, but um, it's more stressful in that sense. But um, so there's no, when, when we're in court, if you had an 8.30, um, hearing and you were done you'd go into the cafeteria you'd sit around and unwind for a little while so now that that specific unwind time doesn't exist anymore and i don't know how you guys do it i'm i'm pretty sure you have the same stresses as we do yeah i mean it's, a, it's the exact same thing i wonder I, I don't go to court anymore so i save that drive time 
or even seeing clients assign documents, I save that time, but somehow I work as intensely as ever. I don't know where, how it went. And I, like you, I use Calendly, I use a lot of technology, but it is, it is interesting how the energy and the stress of our industry has changed given, given COVID. So is there, I know that there's certain things you can go to court for. Do you just not go at all? I mean, is there, is there anything that you would go for, uh, make a, a personal appearance at, trials do they need to be in person or is that also yeah, all i've done trials. yeah I've, I've done trials by la court connect so even that's not necessary anymore um some sales it might be necessary to go to court and but they're unusual sales uh, but usually if there is a realtor who has pre-checked everybody um all the possible overbidders have has checked their you know cashier's checks etc that even going to court on that level is not necessary. So we tell the realtors now that you can, you know, you can ask people to show you their documents before they bid. Right. But um, it's always possible that somebody will show up to court with a check and you have no, no idea who they are. Right. Um, and by law, that, you that have to allow them to qualify, you have to allow them to bid or you want them to bid, you're gonna make some more money for your estate, right? Right. And, and so what we do is we tell them that, you know, if, if we do the court usually checks you know are there any overbidders that you know have not been checked in um we ask them to you know send us a copy of their cashier's check right. by email i know in uh nevada in las vegas which is i think clark county they actually require registering with the court i want to say 72 hours before i think it's 72 or 48 hours before they actually the court actually requires it now i know here in la there are some attorneys who request it or you know, realtors request it, but I don't know that it's required necessarily. It, it, it's probably good practice, but it's um, not the court process. So that's an interesting one that I think the courts may be missing that would make you know, everybody's life a little easier. Yeah, it's not required yet, um, but um, you know, we have ways to tell the realtors, you know, if you put it on the MLS that you have to present your cash flows check, most people who come they, they come from having seen the MLS. So right. that's a good way to get people to, uh, to present their documents to you. It's, just, it's not any different than anything else. Like you, you would pre-qualify buyers before they submit an offer, right? Yes. In a regular sale. So it's, it's, it's yeah. not any different yeah. than that. Yeah. Um, we got one question from Jim Mikowski who's talking about fees. He says that he thinks California might be unique in that attorneys are rewarded a fees based on the amount of the estate, does that then create for the attorney an incentive to maximize the value of the estate? Or is that, um, and does that work to the estate's benefit or just the attorney's benefit? But we have a duty to maximize what comes into the estate. Um, so our duty is to the administrator whose duty it is to maximize what comes into the estate. Um, I'm not sure if that is anymore. So even if you awarded me a, a flat fee, for example, I still would have the same duty as to the estate. Uh, and that's so that it, it the estate. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And the reason for that is if there is some dispute about ownership of the property, you may think you have a million dollar estate, but at the end of the game, you may end up with a half a million dollar estate if the estate actually is not the owner of that pro or ends up not being the owner somehow in settlement, et cetera. So, um, luck the draw. 
You know, the way you say, and I know, because I know you, when you say the word duty, you take it so seriously as an attorney. And I think in general, attorneys take that very seriously. I'm a realtor. I have the same duty you have. I have the same moral, ethical responsibility you have. I also, in some regards, have the same legal obligation, but I rarely hear a realtor say it with the intensity and the meaning that you just said. Uh, speak to me a little bit about attorneys. It just seems, now my father's an attorney. I've been around attorneys my whole life. But it seems to me they take that more seriously than other professions. Is that just my experience or is that is that why I, I wouldn't pick it up from that? I'm not sure. I've had I've had interactions with realtors, with brokers, um, and you know we all have rules of ethics. We all have to live by. And I think most of the people I've met have dedicated themselves to to that that profession, so they understand the the actual duties of care. So it's more than a duty of care. It's a duty of loyalty that that we owe. If you're a, realtor in California, you're a fiduciary to your client. So right. that is an issue. I mean, I know you guys can do dual representation and I know I've seen in, in forms that, you know, you have to disclose the confidential information to both sides if you do dual representation. I thought, I find, I always find that interesting yes. because I say to myself, well, if I'm the seller and if I yeah, tell you, Bill, there's, um, you know, I'm not going to take any less than half a million and you know and you know that i have to pay my creditor for example a hundred thousand dollars in in 30 days you know even though i'm saying to you i won't take less than half a million right. then i might in fact be taking less right. so how does that put you where does that put a realtor who rep dually represents a buyer and seller what would you be able to tell the buyer? I, you know, I agree with you. 99% of the time, I agree with you. I, I find it so uncomfortable. You know, generally, you sign the listing agreement first. So you now have a client to sell the house. The other person who calls you isn't yet your client. How can you possibly serve them uh, in any way that lowers to your client that you have a contract with? And, I, and my answer to that always is, if my seller would want me to help that buyer, if there's some reason why I can uniquely make it happen, then great. But that's a very rare circumstance. Maybe it's a real small property where other agents won't waste their time on it or some other reason. But I agree. I don't understand how agents so regularly, and that's why I got involved in probate, to be honest. I saw so many double ending. So how can it be of all of LA County that person seems to double end their listings half or two thirds of the time. It's impossible. There must be something else going on here that's not serving the client. And that became my opportunity. So, yeah. I'm, so I'm, 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 again, like I said, I, I don't know, but the duty is there. Um, so it's how you handle the situation. I suppose if that situation arose, I should go to your seller and say, listen millions your bottom line but but i know you got to pay this creditor what do you want me to do um do you let me go talk to them or not and then if the, your seller may say no then you know that's sort of where things are at i would think and, I, I, again um, I, i'm with you on that and you know, like i said very rarely 
have I double ended deals because I just don't think it's even, even phone calls on my leads. I like to give them out to other agents because I just feel like, how can I, how can I serve the client? Uh, they, they're paying me good money to represent them. So I, I understand completely. Um, okay. So I have some other questions, but I know we have a, a you know, nice uh, group of people on our call today. Here's a chance not just to talk to an attorney who's involved with probate, but really one of the top, most active in LA County and also being in probate. Uh, litigation really sees kind of the edges of the envelope of the probate business, sees kind of what what happens and what can't happen. So if you have questions, feel free to put in the chat box. I, I've seen a couple. Or if you're watching live on YouTube or Facebook, I see some people. If you put your questions or comments there, I can bring them as well to her. So feel free to jump in. Uh, or if you're on the line and you want to meet yourself and just jump in the question, feel free. Um, so I know, I know Mina, I've seen her in court. She can handle questions, some pretty tough ones. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't fun. be don't be shy um, she seems anyway, really nice I, but I, in court um, she's not very nice if you're on the wrong uh, side she's not she's not really nice i know but bill sees the ugly side of me in the case so um unfortunately unfortunately that's part and parcel of litigation that comes with it but um when i close the computer nowadays i can't even say i close the door when i close the computer the laptop then I've turned into a different person. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've, I've worked with you. I was thinking about this from three different angles. I've, I've worked with you and your clients, representing your client. I've worked with you on um, representing a buyer on one of your sellers where there actually was potential litigation or threat litigate, whatever you want to call, opposite sides of the legal battle to some degree. And I've also worked in the middle where you, where I was a temporary, I was a realtor for the temporary uh, agreement between the two parties to get a property sold. So I've seen you really from all three angles. I'd much rather be on your side uh, than on the other side. <laughs> and the other side that you were on, that drove us crazy, but that's all right. Um, that's all yeah. good. It's all good. Um, well, and I think also, I, I won't get into the details of it, but it also, um, I think that most customers would be shocked to see the variation of the quality of service of attorneys. I, I, you, I know you don't speak by, by your profession, but the reason why I do this and why I have you on is if I have a colleague who needs a probate litigation attorney, I want them to reach out to you. I don't want them just to pick somebody who has probate on their website because I've seen the difference. And sometimes the difference is subtle. You meet the attorney and you go, wow, this guy looks pretty sharp. And you watch him in court and they're just completely unprepared and that's not you. So. I do think it's important. It's it's like any other business. The top ten percent are so much better than the rest, and often don't cost that much more, if any more, that we should find always try to find the right person, the right fit. Okay. Don't, when I wanted to get a, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Forgot what I was going to say. Oh, okay. So, um, tell me about. Um, uh, I know that you're husband does the trust administration. Um, do you get customers uh, who come to you for estate planning? And um, what are common misconceptions that people don't take the next step and meet with the husband and, and get started on planning, and they end up down the road being your customer instead of your husband's customers? Because I've had the experience personally of recommending to people to meet with an estate planning attorney and it's a harder sell than I ever would think it would be. I would think it's an ounce of prevention versus a pound of cure. 
How do you find that discussion uh, or do you get involved in that at all? Um, I generally don't, but remember, I, I start, when I first started my practice for the first 10, 15 years, I did planning as well. I, I tend not to do that now, but in terms of being able to do it, yes, I can. What, what motivates people to do estate planning isn't usually just somebody telling them to do it. There's usually an, uh, a reason. Either somebody's traveling and they want to make sure that they're, they've protected their loved ones or somebody uh, has passed away in the family and it's in the background and, and their thoughts that, hey, I got to take care of this. Someone's ill in the family or the person himself or herself is ill. So there's usually these reasons why people do estate planning. Um, somebody has had a child, perhaps they bought a house. Um, so if they don't fit into one of those categories, um, their incentive in doing estate planning is small. Um, not, not just because they're not aware of it, they're aware of it, but you know, you know, they, they think, you know, I'll do it next year. You know, there's another more important project on my list of projects to do. So those different incentives, those factual incentives govern whether or not somebody goes to an estate attorney. You know, I got a great question from Jim again, and actually um, it's really relevant to, to you and me. Um, he says the laws become specialized. How often do you bring in other attorneys that specialize in other areas of law? For example, a state property is tenant occupied and the beneficiaries want to evict the tenant or a tax attorney. I know you've done that because- uh, All the time. I was going to say, I just did one with you last week where you brought in um, I, uh, I a think petition I, I, action, right? Right. I, I had a case where that needed a um, partition attorney, so I brought in a partition attorney. I've had cases that needed eviction lawyers. I've referred out eviction lawyers. Our area of law touches on a lot of things. Um, so we tend to refer out those things that we can't do ourselves. Or there sometimes somebody, in our case, somebody else needs representation about a particular topic or um, it could be a topic, but we can't represent both sides. Just like, you know, we talked about a couple days ago, I mean, a couple of minutes ago, um, that person's interest is unique to themselves. And I would not necessarily be able to represent them adequately. So that's a case where we would um, refer out to someone else that, that can help them. So I, I know there are cases where it's an ethical requirement. I also know you well enough to know that you also are quicker than most attorneys to refer to a specialist who's going to do a better job in that area, knowing that that person you know, is better served and it works out for your business in the long run. Share with me a little bit about your thinking, because I agree with you. I, I have a client who isn't even a practicing attorney. He has a condo. He's doing his own eviction work. It's like, of all the work to do, that's like the last thing I think I would do uh, on my own. And here you're involved with evictions regularly, and you were quick to refer it out to, I'm sorry, a petition actually, you were quick to refer it out to somebody who's really sharp having talked to him and, and I appreciate the chance to meet him. Tell me about your thought process behind that. Why is it that you are, not just when you have to ethically, but business-wise or for client customer service-wise, 
Why are you so quick to make that referral? Business wise, it's, it's really good for us to make referrals out. Um, it gets the job done faster. Uh, I would have to go learn partition actions. I would have to go and research it. The person I refer the case to doesn't have to do that. That, that costs a lot less for the client. It'll make a happier client uh, and it gets their job done. So, um, and it creates a um, camaraderie among attorneys that, that is very valuable, especially now, like you said, in, during COVID, um, those relationships are very valuable to us. Either we send people out or they send somebody back to us. Um, it evens itself out over a long period of time. So I, I would not hesitate to refer somebody out. And I'm sure you would do the same thing if you needed to refer to somebody who handles, for example, uh, a San Diego um, piece of property. Mm -hmm. You could do it, but that person knows the area, knows what's going on in the area, and that, that person could do it better than you. When I train new agents, I tell them my license lets me sell the Golden Gate Bridge, but I don't know anything about bridges. So I'd find a bridge expert to let him sell the bridge. And, and uh, But I've noticed it about you, it works both ways. I've seen that, that you're quick to refer out and it gives a better customer service or client service experience. And as a result, attorneys are quick to refer back to you because there's that camaraderie that you've earned as a result of being one of those participants in the process. And I guess I'd like to see more realtors do that. I think we're too quick to jump on anything that looks like business rather than trying to find where we create value for our customers. So, um, well, great. Um, so you mentioned that you do these kind of interviews and phone calls and Zoom calls and things like that. Do you have an actual, you know, detailed business plan for marketing or is it just more a matter of you work during certain hours and you put in your time and you do a certain amount of marketing activities? How do you, how do you manage your business the business of your business as opposed to the legal part? Or do you the business of the business or the actual practice of law. Right. So less of my work is the actual practice of law than it is working on my business. Mm -hmm. So most of the things that I do are trying to um, manage the cases rather than actually work inside of them. So I have paralegals and colleagues that um, that work on those aspects of it so that I can concentrate on figuring out if someone who has called me or sent a referral, if that's actually a good case or a bad case or how I can actually serve that person. Um, so there are times where I'm talking to people till nine o'clock at night and there are times where I've checked out at 2 p.m. So it, it all varies um, with, you know, what can be done. I was completely away from the practice of law for a little bit over a month. I had a hip replaced. So I thought that was, wow, that's kind of an interesting experience. I've never had that before, but, um, it sure was interesting because everything flowed w without me. So it was not, not a bad thing. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that things flowed without you like that? Everything flowed without me. Nobody missed me. <laughs> you know, when I started in the business in uh, 1986, and I got married at the end of that year, and uh, you know, I used to be a 24/7, you know, like like many people, like too many people in real estate. 
And I went away for a week. We went to some uh, resort in the Caribbean in, uh, in uh, where was it? Uh, St. Martin in the uh, uh, West Indies. And then this is before, you know, internet, and this is, cell phones weren't available like they are now. I mean, I was really out of touch for a week. And it was amazing how every deal closed without me, and I was completely gone for a week. Nobody needed me to be around. Now, business development didn't happen, but, you know, I got back yeah. and it all kind of worked itself out over time. So it's funny how that works out. So that, that's a test to see if things will work out, you know, and if you're forced to have to do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I had that. I had that test this month. I had. Uh, I'm religious, so I had seven days of the 20 work days of September, where I had religious holidays, and two of the other days I was fasting. So it's like, I'm either work, I'm either overeating or not eating anything, and uh, I've never been on the phone or text for uh, seven of 20 days. But everything worked out, so it's just amazing how uh, somehow I managed to be more efficient during the time I did work. It all worked out good. So okay, so let me ask you one last thing. I guess I would say if you had a magic, if you had a, a magic, uh, if you had a magic wand, oops, we're gonna change that. If you had a magic wand and you could change something about I your practice, your Marsha, you have a question? No, I think she has her, her mic open. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, she's off. Okay, um, if you had a magic wand and could make a change in your business and probate. Uh, litigation or probate in general in Los Angeles County, what would you do if you had one thing that you could change to make an impact and make the, the business better or the practice better for other people? What I could change or what the court could change? Well, it's your wand. <laughs> you can make the court question. change it. You can make the court change it. Okay, so if I had a magic wand, I'd have shorter timelines where they would give you hearings. If that was the magic wand I could have, I could have hearings that would happen and two and a half months as opposed to six months. That would be kind of a nice want, but I don't know if that's a possibility. Um, what else could I do? What else could I do? Um, I think one of the things I would like to work on, which is, which is one of my ultimate goals, is to automate a lot more of my practice so that I can be more hands, hands free. And that's a challenge because, you know, you, you would think that the court forms are all the same, but there's really not, not any two petitions that are identical. So some of those things I would like to be able to see if I can automate and so that um, it can run itself with some modification, mm -hmm. but that that's, that's a challenge. The details so of more the, automation. Yeah. Would the be details of pleading, thing. the details of each individual motion you have to watch carefully. You take a template, but then that almost creates more problems because you might miss something that you have to change. Yeah. I mean, I, I, to, to give you an example, I mean, I, I've done a, a petition to get authorization to sell a conservatee's house many times before but the facts are always different will the court buy my reasoning as to uh this particular conservative that's the part that's not easy to uh, put in a form format because i think you need to know the circumstances be able to argue that, you know why the court should grant you that authority because the person's alive 
they own this home. Why should you sell it? Um, these are those are the challenges. But I think that um, my next set of goals all involves automation. Interesting, interesting. Well, we'll look forward to you getting that magic wand and making the process more automated. Because uh, how you know, it, it, I've been in uh, real estate since 1986, and every year we get more automated. But then the regulators create more papers, so we have more forms than before. That with more automation, we're still falling behind in the work we got to deal with. It seems like. So well, you got to a lot of forms. We can't read all of your forms. <laughs> well, you know, I always ask attorneys this question after they buy a house. I say, what percentage of the pages that you signed and theoretically approved did you actually read and, and understand in detail? And I said, when you're an attorney, what do you think the average customer does? Right? They have no idea what they're signing. I, I feel bad admitting it, and I'm available to answer questions that they get bored after 30 minutes and you're only on page 12 out of 150 pages of stuff, right? It's it's just overwhelming to customers. It is, it is overwhelming um, for attorneys as well as customers. I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the real estate forms that really threw me off one time was, and my client is a lawyer, is a former probate attorney. And we both came across this form. It had to do with fire area disclosures in LA. Yes. Yes. So we we were scratching our heads <laughs> trying to figure out, you know, is this one of our is this property one of those properties where there there is a risk of fire, isn't it? Do we have to do anything about it? So so these are the challenges that we get. Yeah, you know, even though with, there were two lawyers and both of us were looking at each other like, okay, now what? Yeah, and then the customer calls me with a form and I'm like, I don't know. You know, and I've lived in fire hazard houses before. I've sold fire hazard houses. The one where um, uh, I was representing the buyer on one of your listings, that was a fire hazard house where the street was shut down at certain times of day when the fire engines had to go up the hill and stuff. That one you know is a fire hazard. Some of you know. Other ones, how do you find out? It's not so simple. And yet the customer is obligated to disclose if it's a fire hazard zone or not. And I don't know that people necessarily know or how they can even know to know. It, it would be very difficult if you live anywhere in the city of Calabasas. Everything's a fire hazard. Correct. I mean, so how how do you decipher that? I don't I don't think you can uh, in most cases, but we're, we're figuring it out. Yeah, and I think sometimes the government, it sounds like a great solution have people disclose the fire zone, but when the customer doesn't know, they even know what a fire zone is. What do you What do you mean? I don't know about that. So yeah, well, there you go. So your magic wand is to automate things. So we'll have more forms designed that we don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> automate the forms that we'll know, and let's leave the ones we don't know uh, in manual format. Well, look, we're near the end of our time here. I really appreciate so much the chance to chat with you. If somebody had a question regarding probate, probate litigation, estate planning for your husband, how would they best uh, get in touch with you? So the best way to give us uh, is to give us a call. It's 818-340-4479 or to email me. My email is msirkin, M like Mary, S-I-R-K-I-N at circinlaw.com. Or if you can't remember that one, 
you just type in minasirkin at gmail.com and it'll go exactly to the same thing. Fantastic. And we'll put all the comment of the uh, Can you put that on the chat box? It's there. Myrna? It's there. And, uh, okay. the notes in the, in the, in the you. YouTube and the Facebook as well. Thank you, Marcy, for following up on that. Good. Okay. Mina, thank you so much. It's, a it's always a pleasure to see you, uh, even if it's only via Zoom. Thank you very much for having me. I Look appreciate you. Again soon. And, okay. And thank everybody, thank you so much. We just probate weekly, do it every Thursday, at 4 o'clock. It's streamed live on the Zoom. When we don't have technical problems, we stream it on YouTube and Facebook. It's recorded there as well. Thank you for everybody who participated. Call me, text me, or email me if I can help in any way. Make it a fantastic week. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye.